morning we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 9. We'll be looking at the end through the end of chapter 10. First Kings 9, beginning in verse 26, God's word says, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There is nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted you in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. <coughs> he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba, Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres, harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, Whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounteous King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 sh shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. And at the back of the throne were, was a calf's head. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest. While twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were silver. Silver was considered as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. 
Once every three years, the fleet of the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he had stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. And the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And to the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the king of Syria. Let's pray real quickly. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. As we prepare for vacations, as you prepare for vacations, you probably go online and look up the places you want to visit and go eat and the things you want to enjoy. And the websites, they fill their pages with beautiful pictures trying to entice you and allure you so you'll want to go and spend your money and time with them. And sometimes as we go, we then go see the place and we return and we say, the pictures don't do it justice. You have to go see it for yourself. It's so incredible. Well, this morning we come to the famous account of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. She'd heard lavish reports of Solomon, and she's come from a great distance to see it for herself. As she considered these accounts, these have to be overblown. They have to be exaggerated. They're too extreme. But once she heard with her own ears and saw with her own eyes, she said she hadn't heard the half of it. Right now we're in the middle of the middle of Solomon's middle years. As we read of Solomon's middle years, we saw some troubling things last week. Yet in this passage, the author gushes over how perfect Solomon's kingdom is. We could perhaps note some warning signs, but I believe the author's main intent is for us to be in awe, for us to be in amazement. The author wants us to see that his kingdom was filled with peace. His kingdom was filled with wisdom, his knowledge. His kingdom was filled with wealth, and his kingdom was filled with God. As we move into the New Testament, we see that all of things are really pointing to a greater king who would come and keep these things not just for a time, but for eternity. But before then, I want to ask, if you pictured paradise, what would be in your paradise? If you were to fill web pages with what it would look like, what would be there? Well, here in verses, 1 Kings 9-10, through 10, we're given a snapshot of paradise. And this snapshot shows that there will be peace there. There will be wisdom and knowledge there. There will be wealth there. And most of all, God will be there. If you have a bulletin, that's the outline we'll be looking at this morning. First in the, these verses, we see that there's peace. And we see that because at the beginning, verses 9, 26 through the end, and at the end of chapter 10, Solomon is able to trade 
from the Red Sea, which is in Edom, all the way up to Kew. He's able to trade from Egypt to Kew. And these, this ability to have this international trade can only exist because of the peace that he was able to bring. Not only did he trade with all these places, he was also the middleman between the Hittites and the Syrians in their trade. Now flip back to chapter 4, verses 20 through 25, because you see there an expansion of what this peace looked like. So in chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 20 through 25. There it's talking of Solomon. And it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So Solomon's rule and reign, his kingdom is known for peace. Peace for every single person. We may have different ideas of the perfect location. Some of you may love the mountains and the forest, where others want to be at the beach or in the plains. And yet every dream of paradise dreams of it being a place of peace. And yet, though we dream for peace, we know that this world is filled with conflict. You know, it's a troubling, it's a sad fact that humans can't maintain peace. Two people are deeply in love, and yet in that love, they will eventually have conflict. Communities gather around the same ideals, the same plans, and yet they have internal squabbles, power plays, and differences of opinion. Not only is there conflict with each other, there's conflict in ourselves. Sometimes we love ourselves, and sometimes we hate ourselves. And thus, though we say, give peace a chance, Peace seems to be an elusive dream that we can never actually grasp. And even Solomon in the next chapter, his peace will begin to dwindle. So why is it that every single person wants peace and yet we can't seem to attain it? We all want the same goal and yet it can't happen for long. When the Bible says it's very simple. The issue is that every one of us says, I want to rule myself. That's what the essence of sin is. We say we don't want to submit to God. We want to run our life the way we want to. And so we have conflict with God because we don't want him to run our lives. And when we get with other people, we love them as long as they love what we're doing and want to do what we say. And yet they feel the same way. So there's conflict because they want their way. And we don't get along because we want to rule ourselves. And yet you don't have to to be in conflict you don't have to be in disputes or in term inner turmoil when jesus came what did the angel say they declared to the shepherds glory to god on the highest and upon earth peace with those with whom he is pleased 
You know, Jesus came to bring peace, and he offers that to you. You know, the offer is, look, end your rebellion to God. Rather than trying to rule yourself, submit to him. Admit, my rebellion deserves punishment, and yet Jesus came and take that, took that so we might have peace. And yet, sadly, we reject that peace. Even in Jesus' own days, the people rejected that peace. I'm going to read from Luke 19, 41 through 43. And there, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, knowing he is about to die, knowing that he has spent years trying to convince them who he was. And it says that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Jesus is saying, you didn't realize that God came to visit you in me, in Christ, the Son of God, that I came to bring you peace. And I've told you this over and over. And so he weeps as he comes and they don't want to know his peace. Do you have peace right now? Because you look at this world and yourself, and though it is troubling, do you have confidence in God? Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So in our anxiety, in our sorrow, don't fret or be anxious, but bring it to the Prince of Peace. Bring it to the one who took what should be your biggest fear, facing the punishment for your sin, so that you might know true and lasting peace. You know, peace comes when we know God, and we also see that while peace is a part of paradise, also wisdom and knowledge is. And we see that exemplified in Solomon, that's our next section, wisdom and knowledge. And this is kind of the heart of the story in chapter 10. The Queen of Sheba hears of all he knows. And so she comes to ask him hard questions. The word hard questions is similar is the word for riddles, such like Proverbs 1, 5, and 6. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their Riddles, the same word. Or Samson, you may be familiar with his story. And when he went to get married, he told the Philistines a riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. But it wasn't just riddles. As we look through the, these verses, we see that the, she asked all that was on her heart. Everything that she had wondered about, puzzled over, didn't understand. And notice what it says in verse 3. It tells us that the king was able to explain everything to her. Nothing was hidden, and he explained it all. That's rather remarkable. Even with young children, we sometimes have to say, I don't really know. Uh, That's kind of hard. I'll have to think about that one. Well, that's really deep. I'd. I'm not to tell you, I just can't answer that. And yet Solomon was able to answer all of her questions 
in riddles. Now, we don't know exa the exact location of Sheba. Uh, most commentators give these various locations, and they're all about 1,000 miles or 1,500 miles away. And a queen like this, she wouldn't just show up on horseback. As we saw, she came with a large retinue, a large group. Second Chronicles 9 same, says she came with servants and camels. Now, camels are not known for sprinting, though they can. They're trotting, plodding more animals. And so a journey of a 1,000 miles with this large group would probably take about a month at least to get there. And then she's there, and then it's going to take a month at least, to get back. So she is given a quarter, a third of a year to come ask these questions. You know, what would you give up that much time for to look into, to investigate? And when she comes, it tells us that it took her breath away. Now, this is not the country mouse who comes in and is impressed because the city mouse has so many things that are different. This is a queen, the top of the top. She is not easily impressed with dazzle. She is used to all this, and yet even she, notice what she says in verses 6 through 8. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Now notice, this is not even just a one person who is impressed. If you look at verses 23 through 24, we see that kings of the earth continue to come. Year after year, they continue to come to hear Solomon's wisdom, to hear what God has put into his mind. In other words, God's fulfilling the promise he made to Solomon in chapter 3 that he would give Solomon wisdom and wealth. And so it's not just an exuberant Jewish author who has a little bit of favoritism for this Jewish king who's writing all these great reports. It comes from foreign queens and kings. Not just once, but over and over, year after year, this amazing wisdom that only could come from God. And yet Jesus will later use this story to condemn the Israelites. Because the Israelites are coming. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen Jesus give sight to the blind. They've seen them forgive sins, even bring the dead back to life. And yet they say, Jesus, could you show us one more sign? They don't want to believe they just want to be entertained and so jesus in luke eleven thirty one says the queen of the south meaning sheba will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and behold something greater than solomon is here now jesus is saying i am way greater than solomon and y'all didn't really have to come i came to you you don't believe. Yet the queen of Sheba went over a thousand miles and she investigated. And she's going to sit in condemnation saying, look, I investigated what I heard. Why didn't you believe what you could actually see? Now, if they were culpable due to their greater revelation, how much more are we? Probably very few of them had any books, 
let alone for them the Old Testament in their house. Not only do we have the Bible, though, we have unfettered access. We have greater access now than people even had 75 years ago. You can look up commentaries and sermons and podcasts and hear and learn anything you want. So what are you searching after? Have you responded in faith and obedience to Jesus passionately pursuing him? Or, if you're honest, are you quite skeptical or even bored with who he is? You know, the wisest of all time, God himself has come. And he calls people everywhere to repent. And one day, we will have the knowledge even greater than Solomon had. Because one day, Paul tells us, for one day, we will see him face to face. He says it this way, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One day, not only will Solomon have this wisdom and knowledge, but all of us will live eternally in a paradise with wisdom and knowledge. Yet it wasn't just his wisdom that amazed her, also his wealth, and we see that in these verses. And before we dive into these various descriptions of Solomon's wealth, we have to briefly mention that these are descriptions to bring joy and delight, not backhanded critique. I've tried to be honest as we go through. I think there are various times the author is helping us to see that Solomon is not living up to all he should be. He's not always obeying as he should. And yet, the issue in this case is not that Solomon has wealth. The wealth is not God's cursing. It's God blessing him. In fact, when Solomon asked for wisdom, God said in chapter 3, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. Or Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Your First Timothy 6.10 often gets misstated. People often say, well, money is the root of all evil. Well, it's not what it says. It says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Thus, we should recognize God's blessing of Solomon in these verses and not have some sneaking suspicion that anyone who is wealthy is also secretly really sinful there are selfish rich people and there are selfless rich people there are selfless poor people and there are selfish poor people the issue is not how much you have the issue is what has you does your money have you or do you have it in fact To feel shame over being rich is to dishonor God. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. In other words, some people get rich and then they look down on others. He says, don't act that way. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God gave it to you to enjoy it. So enjoy the good gifts God has given you. Don't feel shamed over them. He says they are the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So use your wealth, and by historic standards, even by the standards of the globe today, every one of us in here is very wealthy. Use your wealth to 
give thanks to God, to enjoy it, and to be generous and ready to share. With that being said, notice the massive amount of wealth Solomon has. It began in the first verses we read in 26 to 28 of chapter 9, where he has this sea trading agreement with Hiram, and 420 talents of gold are brought in. But that's just the beginning. Then in chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, ten times the word gold is mentioned. And each year, Solomon received 666 talents of gold which would amount to about 50,000 pounds a year. If you bring that to today's standards, that would mean his annual income just from gold was about $1.1 billion. It's so much gold that Solomon just kind of slathers it on everything. Shield, gold. More shield, gold. Cups, gold. Every cup, every utensil, gold. Throne, gold. Gold is just everywhere. and It's so much, so what does it say? Silver was like a stone. Oh, you have a silver cup? What's that? That's nothing. Solomon is extremely wealthy. And the queen of Sheba, verses 4 and 5, she marvels at not just his gold. Look at your house. Look at your food. The seats you have for people. Your servants, the clothes, even your offerings. He brings in fancy wood. He brings in fancy stones we see in verse 11. Verse 22 of chapter 10, he brings in silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. And I think these are just representative. They're an abundance of things that they just go, wow, look at everything we have been given, that God has given Solomon. He has a massive throne, these huge six steps with a lion on each side going up. And then the top is ivory, but ivory is not fancy enough, so we slather that with gold too. And then this throne, and it's all there, and God blessed Solomon with it. Nothing like this had ever been seen before in any kingdom. Now, in contrast to some commentators who always want to paint some horns on Solomon, this wealth is not getting stored up for himself as his servants are living in the slums outside in Jerusalem. Notice again the Queen of Sheba's words, verse 8. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants. They are blessed. Not only that, She talks about in verse 9 that the people of Israel are blessed because of his wisdom. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, and it's talking about in power, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, not just like they're blessed because he's wise. Look at chapter 10, verse 27. There it says, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem. As stone doesn't say as common in the palace as though he's got his arms around it hoarding it saying just for me no one else can have this Solomon is living out being a blessing to others earlier we read chapter 4 and there said that prosperity went to everyone so that every man was under his vine and under his fig tree that's Jewish lingo for saying they were blessed It's the equivalent to what was said in the early 1900s. Every American will have a chicken in every pot and a car in the garage to boot. This idea that we're all going to be so wealthy that you're going to eat a chicken every night and you're even going to have a car. In Solomon's day, everyone's got a vine. What is that? Well, it's a plant to grow wine to get joy from. And everyone has a fig tree. You get fruit and you get a lay under it. You're so 
wealthy, you're blessed and prosperous, and you're peaceful. In those verses in chapter 4, pointed out it wasn't just in Jerusalem. It says from Dan to Beersheba. That's a northern city and a southern city. From sea to shining sea. Everyone is blessed. So what should we make of these descriptions of wealth? Well, I think four things. First, we should give thanks to God because every good gift comes from Him. Imagine your child really wants a gift and whenever they ask you, like, eh, it's really expensive. I don't know if we can afford that. And then you and your spouse talk, and finally you say, you know what? We're going to get it for them. And on their birthday, you give it to them. And they open it, and they go, are you trying to make me a materialist? Are you giving this to me because you really want me to start loving things rather than loving God? Why are you giving this to me? Are you trying to harm me? You would be like, what are you talking about? You wanted this, and we wanted to bless you, so we gave you this great gift. Why are you attacking us? And when we look at what God gives us and feel shame and go, why did you give? Are you being mean to me by giving me good things? Or we look at people like, oh, I can't believe they have that much. We're blaspheming God. We should give thanks because every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So don't malign God when he gives you good things. Give thanks and bless him. But second, as we saw in 1 Timothy 6, don't hoard it. Be generous and willing to share. Now you ought, emphasis, you ought to share with others. There's no quota. It should be done joyfully. But sometimes I fear that Christians as we try and fight off bad economic ideas in our culture, we say things like, it's your money. You should be able to do with it whatever you want. Well, okay, on an economic sphere this way, on this world, yes. As a citizen in the country, yes. But you're a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, it's not your money for you to do with whatever you want. It's God's money in which he's given you money and resources to steward for your enjoyment. Yes, definitely. For wisdom and investing, yes, and to be generous and ready to share. The king is going to say when we stand and bow before him, were you generous with your wealth? Did you bless others with it? The third thing I think these pictures of wealth are meant to show us is that they are a drop in the bucket to God's riches. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And it tells, details the new Jerusalem and says, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Solomon made silver as common in stone. But in the new heavens and earth, gold will be better for nothing more than just walls and streets. This is a glimpse of what is to come. Heaven will be filled with abundant riches and wealth. And so, yes, we should not love money, but neither should we disparage it and realize God gave us desires for beautiful things. But fourth, we should 
recognize all this and recognize really it's nothing compared to how God cares for all of us. Jesus talks about it this way in Luke 12 because Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're looking at the world and they're going, oh, how are we going to prepare for the future? How are we going to do this? Oh, we're so anxious. And Jesus says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, he wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today, and then tomorrow is just thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And so don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And so Jesus is calling their mind and ours to this passage and saying, think about Solomon's wealth. And you know what that's like? It's nothing compared to a lily. The lily of the field is clothed better than even Solomon and his servants were. You know, for them to get clothes, they had to go and they had to get plants or an animal, and then they had to make it and take all that effort, all that work, and yet God is saying, you're concerned about all this, and yet I clothe lilies so simply. And so if I'm going to clothe lilies, don't you think I'm going to clothe you and feed you and give you all that you need? So don't be worried about all this. That's important. But seek me, and I will provide for you, he's saying. And so we have seen that Solomon's kingdom is a kingdom that had peace. It was a kingdom that had wisdom and knowledge. It was a kingdom of wealth. And I think many people, if they had their website, their panorama of what paradise would look like, that would be the last page. That's it. That's what paradise is. We're all peaceful. There's no sorrow. There's no sickness. We're wealthy. Everyone has full knowledge. There's no lies. This is bliss. And yet Solomon shows that's not bliss if God is not there. And that's what we see last, that a picture of paradise. If we want to know what paradise is like, we have to know that God must be there. And that's what the Queen of Sheba notes in verse 5 of chapter 10. She is amazed with his burnt offerings. And Solomon lived a life that showed all that I have is because of God. And we can say that because Notice what she says in verse 9. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Well, how would a queen from a thousand miles away know the covenant name of God, Yahweh, unless Solomon had told her? How would she know to bless the Lord, to bless Yahweh for all that God gave Solomon unless Solomon was saying, yeah, you know what? It's really not that I went to Jerusalem's best universities and then I went and got some postdocs and studied all this stuff. It's that God, that Yahweh was generous and kind and I prayed and he answered my prayer and he gave this to me. It's not about him. Solomon recognizes it's about the Lord. Notice even chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning 
what is the fame that she's hearing concerning the name of the Lord? That's what the fame is about. Solomon is getting the fame off him and saying, this is all about the Lord. This is not about me. Don't look at my wisdom. Don't look at my wealth. Look at what the Lord has given me. In Genesis 11, as the people are gathering at Babel, they want to build a tower. And notice what they say. They say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's what they're about. They're about making a name for themselves. So whose name are you living for? Or to tie it into the question I just asked, is paradise a world wrapped around you and you getting all the pleasures you want, all the wealth, all the peace, or is it a world that's wrapped around God? And so much in our society is pushing us to think only of ourselves. Now, you could push what I'm saying too far, and I don't mean this as a judgment, more as an observation, but more and more I find people saying, you know what, I want to give my child a unique name. I want them to be known. I want them to be recognized. I want my children to be distinct. And I think we should push back gently and say, well, do we want them to be known for who they are or for who they represent? I'm not challenging any name you might give your child, but what is it that we want for our children? Are we wanting them to build a name for themselves? Or want them to be building a name for the Lord. And the wonderful thing about all this, about knowing God and enjoying eternity, is that you don't have to wait. Jesus in John 17, 3 said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, paradise, eternal life. It's not just something that, well, we'll get there one day, You can begin to enjoy it now if you know the Prince of Peace. Heaven ultimately is heaven because God is there. And we can know and enjoy that today. You don't have to wait. John Piper writes, The critical question is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you've ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if God were not there? What is your paradise? And this morning, these verses in 1 Kings 9 is giving us a picture of what a kingdom looks like on earth that is close to paradise it's a world of peace it is a world of wisdom and knowledge it is a world of wealth but ultimately it's a world where god is there because god is the one who brings us peace he's the one who gives us wisdom and knowledge he's the one who gives us wealth so does your picture of paradise include god let me conclude by just reading these verses from revelation 21 There, the Apostle John is writing of paradise, and he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, 
the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may that be the paradise we long for, that where you are is where our ultimate joy is, that we could say it's better to be a doorkeeper in your house than to be anywhere else. O oh Lord, we do, though, get caught up with the pleasures and the joys of this life. The good things you give us become idols that we crave. And so, Lord, give us a renewed love and delight for you and being with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.